All right, praise the Lord. It's good to have everybody um, here worshiping Christ together on the Lord's Day. Wonderful to see everyone. Uh, those that don't know uh, or, or visiting, my name is Bo Andrews. I'm one of the pastors here. Our, our teaching pastor, Ken, has been out for several weeks and has a couple more weeks uh, or several more weeks to go on his sabbatical. Uh, I want to encourage us all just to keep praying that the Lord would uh, give him rest uh, and um, renew his energy as he um, has uh, encountered um, life happening and uh, has had some some various uh, things uh, that including the uh, the flooding of their home uh, that happened while on uh, sabbatical and so remember him and his family um, we miss him and uh, look forward to him getting back. We'll continue to move through Galatians uh, this morning. We have one more week after this morning of what I would call the autobiographical kind of information that Paul is giving us, the historical information, as uh, he and Peter will have a meeting uh, that we'll talk through next week. And then we'll switch over from that first couple of chapters that we've been talking about as being um, that autobiographical, informational, why Paul, his defense of why his gospel has the authority that he, it does because it was given to him directly from Christ and he didn't learn it from man and wasn't taught it by man. And we'll switch from that to what that gospel actually is for the next few weeks as we talk about in those middle chapters of 3 and 4 um, the gospel of, of God that is presented and the grace that he's given us uh, and by faith, how that we attach uh, or we are attached by faith to the work of Christ Jesus and are in Christ when the Lord sees us. Um, and so then we'll go for, through the, the next several weeks in that um, part before we uh, switch over in the last two chapters back to more of what is uh, the application part. Last chapter uh, or last week when we met t- together, in specific, we talked about uh, the transformation of Paul that happened, that Paul was transformed by the grace of God when he wasn't necessarily out looking for Christ, and instead we made the point that he was actually persecuting the church of God, um, and God found him and transformed him from persecutor to preacher of the gospel. And how that because God did that to him when he had, he he wasn't even interested in being good enough. He wasn't interested in trying to earn God's love through Christ. That the point I hope we took away from it by encouragement is that if God can save a person like Paul, who was putting Christians to death and putting them in prison, who wasn't necessarily even searching for Christ, then certainly God can save anyone. And whether we are thinking of someone else or of ourselves, I I hope that the encouragement is that God saves sinners strictly out of his heart of love and not because of merit that we have, but that God transforms those sinners through the power of his spirit and through the power of his love He doesn't leave a sinner where they are. He doesn't save someone and leave them there, but he he saves us and then he starts us on this path of sanctification. And along that, we saw in Paul's life that God gives his saved ones 
the purpose of declaring his love as found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if there's anyone here today as we, as we start who feels like they're not eligible to be saved, who feels like if there was just, if I could just get over one more sin, if I could just get myself a little bit over the hump, then I think God would save me. I want to dispel that in us, both as we think about ourselves and as we think about other ones that we would like to see come to Christ. That what we need to do is just accept that God saves sinners and that we can pray for those that are outside of the grace of God and pray that God seeks and saves them as well, just like he has us. So this week, we are going to continue on the story that Paul is giving us about his life. I'm going to read chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, and then we'll pray and we'll jump in and see uh, what God has for us here. So if you'll turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make it sure that I was not running in or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they may bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seem to be influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they ask us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Can we pray? Father, as we come to your word, we believe that it has been given, every part of it, by you for us, that we would hear it and be edified by it. Today, Lord, we rest on your promises given to Isaiah that your word would never go forth and return void but that it would accomplish what it was sent forth to do. And like rain that causes the earth to sprout living things, as we study your word now, Lord, we ask that your spirit would take it 
and like rain falling on our spirit, that it would grow in us. Lord, that you would give us enough faith that when we hear your word, like that little mustard seed planted in the garden, it would begin to grow in us something that would become substantial and effective. We ask, Lord, that as we apply your word to our lives, we're convicted of areas where we fall short. Not convicted, Lord, in a way that discourages us as if by falling short, we are losing your love or affection. But, Lord, that your word would make us understand that we are loved by you because of you. That what you've done on our behalf on the cross guarantees a relationship that's been made right with you. And so when we are convicted by your word, Lord, that it wouldn't shaken our relationship with you, but it would encourage us to do better because of what you've already done for us. That we would be made free of performance so that we could live for you out of gratitude. Lord, as we study your word today, would you also cause us, as we consider who we are, to consider the body of Christ that we belong to here at Trinity Bible Church and the greater church that we belong to, the body of Christ universal, and that we would make sure that we have your kingdom in our hearts as we interact with each other at all times. Lord, you have given us salvation so that you could be glorified through our lives. So we ask that we would live for your glory alone and in such a way that unbelievers would be able to see the way we live, not chasing after the things of the world the way that the unsaved do, but so sure in our reward of being with you for eternity that we can endure the arrows and fiery darts of the enemy while continuing to turn the other cheek like our Lord and Savior did and show love and compassion even to those who misunderstand us. All so that the unsaved would see our good works and glorify you in heaven. Jesus, we thank you for your work. We ask that the Spirit of God now works in our hearts, and all for the glory of God alone. Amen. Amen. So, um, we're just going to go through this verse by verse. I'm going to pick out a couple of things, and then hopefully make three application points, and be out of here by 1.30. Um, in short, what's happened now is Paul is at the end of giving his defense to the Galatians uh, of why they should reject the gospel critique that's been given to them by these Judaizers, these troublemakers, who've come in after Paul and Barnabas and in essence said, the gospel is a great, great promise And Jesus is the Messiah, but he's the Messiah of the Jews. And so in order to be, uh, in order to access 
the benefits that Jesus has left his people, you first have to become a Jew, and the initiation into that would be that for men, it would be to be circumcised, but it wouldn't stop there. It would include keeping the rest of the Mosaic law, including the dietary and, and, and different kind of things um, that you would need to add on, or to become something in your transition from Gentile to Jew, so that then you were eligible for Christ to complete you as Messiah. And writing back to that, Paul is, is defending why they should believe his gospel, which says, no, you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, attached to Christ's work alone, all for the glory of God alone. And as he's now at the tail end of defending it, what he's been making the case is, the gospel that I received, I received right from Jesus who found me, saved me, and took me out into the Arabian area and for three years shared with me the gospel. So if my, Paul would say, if my gospel isn't God's gospel, then you've got uh, an argument with Christ because he's the one that shared it with me. We saw last week that he's been now, he was on his road to persecute the church on the way to Damascus, God encountered him and was pleased to reveal Christ in him in a way that immediately changed him from a persecutor of the church to a Christ follower and a a preacher of the gospel. And after three years, he made his way to Jerusalem, not so that he could learn anything, but for 15 days he stayed with Peter. And then where we pick it up now is he says 14 years after and really there's a little bit of debate, is that 14 years after his conversion experience or 14 years after the three years that he already said went by before he went to Jerusalem, which would make it 17 years. I'm not sure why I'm even talking about this uh, other than it makes no difference. Um, But it's something I read, and so it comes out of my mouth sometimes. 14 years later, he goes back up to Jerusalem. And the point I'd really like to make with 14 years is this. Paul in other epistles is going to declare himself a Hebrew of Hebrews and as pertaining to the law, a Pharisee. Those were the most strict sect of of Jewish religious people. And Paul would have absolutely known that in Deuteronomy 16.16, God tells every Jewish man that three times every year he's supposed to go to Jerusalem so that he can celebrate the festivals of Passover, of Pentecost, and of booths. And so when Paul says, 14 years later I went to Jerusalem, he's already telling us something. That God has done so much work in Paul's life that he no longer feels compelled to have to do the work of showing up at Jerusalem at a temple because he's walking with Christ already. He doesn't have to go to Jerusalem to keep the Passover and to keep the festivals because he's keeping Christ in his heart every day. Paul's Jewish religion is already crumbling because he's met Messiah. So it's not compulsory for him anymore to go to a temple made by the hands of man because 
if in that temple you went in, the, tur- the, the curtain was torn in two to reveal that back where the Holy of Holies was, where the presence of God was supposed to dwell, it was empty. Because the presence of God no longer dwelled back there. The presence of God was Christ Jesus as he was, uh, as he was resurrected. And he's told them, now go tarry in Jerusalem and, and until you get the power of the Holy Spirit come upon you. And no longer did Paul feel like he had to go to a place to encounter God. But that God had encountered him and actually took residence in his own heart. So that in later epistles, Paul would say of the body of Christ, plural, don't you know that you are the temple of the living God? And how wonderful that as we gather today together in in, in this place, that it doesn't have to be any kind of ornate or we don't have to go through anything to find God here. But instead, the Gospel of John said that your, out of your bellies flow forth rivers of living water. This he spake of the Spirit, which hadn't been poured out yet. So that when we come together like this, we are the church. We are the temple. Paul didn't have to go to a place because the place had come to him. Now, what a wonderful thing today. As he goes then in verse 1, 14 years later, as he goes back to Jerusalem... Not every, you know, three times a year. Notice also who he's taking with him. He takes Barnabas, who surely would have been known in Jerusalem. If you remember Paul's story out of Acts, when Paul goes to Jerusalem the first time, all of the church people in Jerusalem, including the disciples or the apostles, were like, we know this guy. He's putting people to death for being a Christian. We're not inviting him to come sit in a meeting. We're running and hiding from him. Because if he says he's Christian, one, he's probably lying just to try to sneak in and find out who of us is so that he can come to our house and arrest us later. And if you remember the story, Barnabas, the son of encouragement, was the one who sponsored Paul and took him because Barnabas was known to the church at Jerusalem. So here comes Paul after this missionary journey where they've gone into the Gentiles into the Asia Minor in Turkey. They've planted at least four churches, probably more, but we're told in Acts of at least four of them. And here he comes back to Jerusalem with Barnabas by his side. But they're not alone because he's also got Titus. Well, Titus was a Gentile. Titus was a, a, a Greek There was no way that the Jews would have wanted a a Gentile to come into the temple. As a matter of fact, if the Gentiles went past a certain place in the temple, it was a death sentence for them. And so imagine as Paul is walking into Jerusalem, planning on going to see the pillars of the church, and on one side he's got Barnabas, and on the other side he's got Titus. And in living color, Paul is already, with these three, acting out what God had always intended for the gospel to do, which was to save people of every nation, tribe, and tongue. And as Paul is walking into Jerusalem, into the pillars of the church, there's this picture that's already being presented that we're now just going to see is also verbally told. So he goes with the three of them. And in verse 2, he goes up by revelation. I believe 
that that's probably referring to what was done in Acts 11 as a prophet named Agabus goes and meets with the church of Antioch where Paul and Barnabas and Titus were. And Agabus in Acts 11, it says, by revelation, goes up and tells them of a time that's coming where an extreme famine would come on the land and everybody would be affected. But specifically, those believers in Jerusalem were going to be um, were going to be hurt. Uh, they were they were going to they were going to need help and assistance. And I think when Paul says, "Then I, 14 years later, I came down to Jerusalem by revelation," I believe he's pointing us back to the uh, the revelation that Agabus had told that um, this this uh, this um, famine was coming. And it says, so, and then I set before them, who's the them? Well, we're going to find out that it's Peter, James, the head of the church, and John. Though privately, he says, so it, it appears in verse 2 that he pulls the three of them aside and he tells them the gospel that he's been telling the Gentiles. So Paul pulls these three leaders aside privately and says, Here's what Barnabas and Titus and I have been going around telling the churches that we've planted in Turkey. And he says, so that I, made, I make sure that I wasn't running or had not run in vain. When we read that in English, when I read it in English, what it gives me the impression of is that Paul is presenting his gospel to James, John, and Peter to get their stamp of approval so that he knows he hasn't been saying the wrong thing or running in vain. That, in essence, to me, it seems like maybe he's saying something like, um, here's what I said, what do you guys think? But that can't be the case because what we've just talked about, even in the first chapter where Paul says to the Galatians, If anybody comes and says any other gospel but the one you've heard from me, even if it's me that comes back or an angel, let that person be accursed. So that that means it's not that he's telling these leaders the gospel. This is what we've been telling the Gentiles. What do you think? Can we get your stamp of of approval? That's not what's on Paul's mind and heart. What Paul is doing by telling them the gospel and what he means by that I may not run in vain is that Paul's got in mind a church that's being brought together of every nation, of every background, a a picture of what God's gospel is that's bigger than ethnic Israel, that's bigger than one kind of person that you would imagine being saved. Paul sometimes in his writings refers to running or laboring in a way that he intends to mean I'm completing the mission that God has given me. So in other places he'll say uh, in order that I didn't run in vain or didn't labor in vain, I control my body and I discipline myself. Or in Philippians 2.16, in essence he says I... The Gentile believers that I told the gospel to will have run in vain if they don't hold fast to the word of life. So to run in vain, it means to not accomplish 
what God has given him to do. Well, what had God given Paul to do? Acts tells us God, Christ had revealed to Paul that he was to be the, the gospel carrier to the Gentiles. So what we're looking at is Paul, I think, going into Jerusalem, pulling aside these leaders and saying, here's what I've been telling the Gentiles, the gospel I've been giving them, and God has been using it. Exhibit A. Have you met Titus? What, what do you guys think as in, what is, are you on board with that? Or are you going to add something to that? Are you going to disagree with me? Because the picture we've got is Paul walking in with Barnabas and Titus. But if James and Peter and John at this point said, no, they have to be circumcised, from the get-go, the church of Jesus Christ would have split. And it would have been Pauline, Gentile believers, and Petrine, or or those that followed Peter, the, the Jewish circumcised And everything about the gospel that goes all the way back to Adam and Eve and the world being full of the glory of God and and the promise given to Abraham that through him the nations would be blessed and the charge given to Israel and Isaiah that I want you as my priest to be light to the world would immediately be fractured because believers would have looked at each other with disdain whether you were a Gentile believer or a Jewish believer. Weirdly enough, as we go through the New Testament, we find that that wasn't an easy hurdle for them to get over. That differences within the body of Christ were real and could not be let go of easily. It's not hard to make very many applications with that. When we think of how we come to church and the differences that we have with one another and how it could be that Instead of us working together in unity, we can fraction along non-essential lines and what Paul would later say is bite and devour one another. And I think from the get-go, what Paul's heart really is, is in Ephesians uh, 2 at the later part of the chapter, he has seen this picture of the glorious church of Jesus Christ that is composed of all kinds of people. And John's going to touch on that very same picture in Revelation when he talks about the end of times where there's this body, unnumerable believers of every nation, tribe, and tongue. And I want us just to take a moment and celebrate how wonderful God is that the picture of God's heart is that he wants a body that is not stereotyped but is diverse and wonderful and shows the glory of a God who's not boring and makes one thing over and over, but a God who gave us the duck-billed platypus. And this is a God that's creative. This is a God with ideas. This is a God who said, I think I like blonde hair, brown hair, red hair, black hair, white hair, no hair, and, and, and he was pleased with that. So that when we come together, we don't have to look alike. We don't necessarily have to even like each other. 
But we got to love one another and know that we're in the kingdom work together. And the Bible guarantees us that where unity is, that the spirit of the Lord and the blessing of the Lord resides there. And so the first thing that Paul is after here as he's coming into Jerusalem is not to get their validation, but to make sure that they're on the same page, wanting together for God to be glorified, to see people out of every background saved and brought to him. Verse 3, Exhibit A, Titus. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. This is the proof that Paul gets his answer to make sure that I wasn't running or laboring in vain, that we would all be on the same page. And the proof is that it seems like James, Peter, and John didn't go, all right, so we want to have this conversation and everything, but this guy's got to be circumcised first. Like, Paul, are you not aware that you brought a Gentile kind of this into our house? The proof is that they don't make him get circumcised in verse 3, and that's kind of the end of that thought and it picks up then in verse four yet because of false brothers the greek says because of pseudo brothers pseudo believers it's as i was thinking about this this week i thought my mind more typically goes to false believers being those who aren't doing enough false believers well they're the ones that like they said a prayer and put their faith in Christ Jesus, but I, I really haven't registered a lot of change in their life. So they must be false believers. That's my penchant. That's where my mind of judgment goes most naturally. I, I hear that they say they're a believer, but you know what? I saw them coming out of the theater and it was a rated R movie. <laughs> where were you? Oh, well, I was driving by the theater. I I tend to judge people for their actions because they're not doing enough holiness. But what Paul has a problem with with these false believers is not that they've come in and said, Paul, here's the thing, the Gentiles aren't doing enough uh, to show that they're saved. They're saying the Gentiles aren't doing enough to be saved. And that's a world of difference. Because we get saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, period. Or none of us could ever do enough to merit God's salvation. I mean, do you realize that the Bible says that if you want to be saved by the law, then you have to be saved by all of the law. You can't just pick and choose. There are some parts of sanctification that are easy for me. Just the way God made me, I don't wrestle with everything there is to be wrestled with in the sinful world. I've got my things. Praise God, it's not everything. (laughs) That would be pretty overwhelming. But everybody has something. It's just that the human nature tendency is for me to judge you on the things that are easiest for me to keep. And then that serves two purposes. It kind of elevates me while at the same time it kind of allows me. It elevates me because you're not as good as I am. And allows me to have other people to kind of look down my nose at and prop myself up. 
And if you're doing the same thing to me, then there's no unity. It's just you're thinking I should do more in some areas. I'm thinking you should do less in others. And we, we come together at church and, and we sit in the same place and we hear the same thing. But in our spirits is there unity because that's where God is giving his blessing. Paul says there are these people, these pseudo-brethren, who have come to spy out our freedom. Isn't it weird that when people come to church with an idea of what saved people should look like, they get really, really active and invested in finding out everybody's business so that they can figure out who's saved and who's not. They're great at listening. They're great at investigating, but maybe not for the right reasons. They're spying out freedom. When we were, when my wife and I were first saved, there was a very well-meaning man who told me that saved that Christians can't have TV. He said at one point in his life, he was sitting in his living room and he saw demons coming out of the TV into his family. And it was very convincing. And at that early time in my life, all I wanted to do was be a Christian. And so I got rid of TV for, I don't know, seven years? So long, seven years. <laughs> if you want to borrow any jigsaw puzzles, I think we still have a lot left. Uh, my wife and I learned to play 42 dominoes where we would both play two hands each just because we'd look over at a corner in the house where TV used to be and go, you want to play dominoes? And we couldn't get <clears throat> Anna out of her high chair and learn how to bid, and so we had to just play ourselves. I gave, we, we, we made great sacrifices. I took all of my records my CDs, and even an eight-track tape of the Bee Gees that I had from my parents and sold them all. And while that was probably hundreds of dollars, if not thousands, that I had spent in collecting this music, and I love music, what I found is when I sold them, what did we get, honey, three CDs back? I mean, that they gave us enough that we, we, could, we could purchase three CDs I thought if Christians were really genuine and wanting me to learn their music, they would at least make them discount price, but they weren't. And so I, I got this wow CD that I was like, wow, this isn't music I like, but I'll learn it. And then I found out I didn't have to get rid of all my air supply anyway. And that's the reason I'm all out of love. But <laughs> that's, those are terrible. Please forgive me. We get talked into doing things by well-meaning people who probably have had a real revelation from God sometimes to them about personal convictions. And can I encourage you, if the Lord has ever revealed to you what you should do following him, don't callous your own conscience by sinning against what the Lord has laid on your heart. And your personal convictions are super important in your relationship with the Lord. Because that which is not of faith is sin. And if you can't faithfully believe in what you're doing, well then don't do it. But that's a, that's a separate thing then 
from being so well-meaning that all you want to share with everybody else around you is really probably the blessing you've got from following your personal convictions. But when you defend and share those personal convictions, make sure it's out of a heart to bless others if they choose to follow you in that path and never present it in a way that says you're somehow less of a Christian if you're not doing this or maybe worse that you can't be a Christian unless you are. Because from there we've crossed a line. And these people that had snuck in were spying out the freedom that Paul and Barnabas and Titus had with a motive. And their motive was so that they may bring us into slavery. And when we get led into doing extra biblical things out of guilt because somebody else has shared their personal convictions with us in a way that now makes us feel if we're not doing that, we can't be Christian or we're less than Christian, then we have left the freedom that Paul's going to say in in Galatians 5, one, it is for freedom you've been set free, and we've entered again into the yoke of bondage of having to perform something. And though I was funny about it earlier, let me just share the thought real quickly that um, there was a time that I turned back on 80s music because I like it. And the guilt I would feel by secretly listening to like Little River Band would, would take me to a bad place of going, God, I just, I just wanted to hear it. And does that mean like now that you're mad at me? Slavery. And bondage. These people had spied out their freedom with the motive of actually making them their disciples and stealing them away from Christ. And Christ would say to the, the Pharisees earlier on or in one of the Gospels, you're like the sons of hell. You go twice around the world in order to make your own disciples that when you've made them, you can make them twice the sons of hell that you are. And I'm not levying that against anybody who shared their own personal uh, convictions. I'm just saying, let's be, let's be serious uh, uh, about how we share things in the body of Christ th- that we never fracture the body that God and his followers are so interested in bringing together that we not fracture along other lines. Moving on. Why did Paul then say, Uh, he says that they wanted to bring us in slavery. How did he react to them? To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment in verse 5. We didn't didn't give in even for a moment. There is one hill to die on in the church, and that's the centrality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's what Paul told the Corinthians I will know nothing save Christ and him crucified. When we start changing what it means in the essential things to be a a, a Christian, those are the hills to die on. 
that, that there's other ways to heaven, that all roads lead to one, that can't we just get along and, and, and love one another and kumbaya, that those people who reject Christ can still be our brothers. Those are hills to die on. But n- not secondary doctrines. Not issues that are just issues of conscience. He says, I reacted that way. I didn't even give in for a moment. Why? So that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Because when we give an inch and accept anything as an add-on to how we're saved, what one generation tolerates, the next one celebrates and practices And when we take in one bit of performance-based salvation, there are those around who observe and who learn from us what it means to be saved. And what it means to be saved is to know that, like Paul, on your path of life, God saw you and elected you, and interacted with you, and brought you to himself, and loved you, and bathed you in the blood of Jesus Christ, and forgave you of all the sins you had committed, will commit ever again, and said it's finished, and then loved you so much that he keeps working with you, and drawing you out of sin, and changing you so that you look more and more like him. And all of that for his glory should produce in us overwhelming joy unspeakable because the yoke is easy I haven't been made free to sin but I have been made free to follow Christ as he saves me from my sin that that's worth being joyful about so Paul won't give in to these brothers because he's protecting the gospel that is making others free trying to decide what I want to share or not. Verse 6. Maybe key to this whole section and we have to move along here anyway. So from those who seemed influential, remember that's Peter, Paul, and John. He's like, "Eh, but it makes no difference to me because God shows no partiality. But here's the point. Those who seemed influential didn't add anything to my gospel. In the end of the day, Peter, James, and John didn't hear what I told the Gentiles and just go, okay, that's almost there, but I'm going to add this. So as Paul is bringing his part of the letter to conclusion that's trying to encourage the Galatian readers in those four churches, the gospel that I gave you, that God has moved through, that has saved you, is sufficient, and he's defending his authority. Here's the capstone. All these people who are coming to you and telling you there's more, who are saying that they're coming from Jerusalem, from the church down there where James, John, and Peter are the leaders, just know that when I met with James, John, and Peter and told them the gospel that I told you, they didn't augment it in any way. They didn't add anything to the gospel. On the contrary, what they did was when they saw what I had been entrusted with, The gospel that I had been entrusted. What do you get entrusted? What's that word bring into your imagination to be entrusted? 
It means you've been brought into something where there's a responsibility or an authority that's been given to you so that you can keep it. You've been entrusted with a mission. You've been entrusted with a secret. You've been entrusted to to accomplish something. And Paul's saying, listen, God chose to entrust me with this gospel and others recognize that. Oh man, listen, God's chosen to entrust us. We're like jars of clay, but God has entrusted us with the gospel and with his spirit and with this great treasure of knowing him through Christ Jesus. When they saw that I had been entrusted to the gospel to the Gentiles, the uncircumcised, in the same way that Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to circumcise also worked through me for mine to the Gentiles. What is he confessing? What is the gospel? The gospel is being an open mouth to tell God's word, knowing that all along it has to be God working through you to accomplish anything. The gospel is sowing seeds and letting God be in control of what's growing. The gospel, Paul says, is just recognizing that the same God who was working through Peter to go one direction was also working through Paul to go another. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave me the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. The right hand of fellowship just means they recognized they were on the same team. And then our passage ends with a reminder that the church is one church, whether Gentile or Jew, the same way that we entered into our passage with this picture of Paul and Barnabas and Titus walking in together. We exit the passage with this only, they ask us to remember the poor, that would be the poor Jews in Jerusalem, because that's what Agabus had said was going to happen, and this was the thing that we, that I was eager to do, and if we look back in the book of Acts, what we find is, as Paul's going through these Gentile churches, he's taking an offering for the Jewish believers in Jerusalem, And so this idea that Paul ends with saying, this is the thing I was eager to do, is closing that loop of going, I was eager to do it because what I was telling the Gentile believers is we're one church. And brothers and sisters of the one church that we belong to in Jerusalem are suffering. Can you give of your excess for them? And that's so different than saying us and they, Gentile and Jew. Quick application, we'll be finished. Verses 1 through 3, I think, shows us that the gospel unifies different peoples in worship of Christ. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that awesome? Around the globe today, in every place, God's spirit is moving in the hearts of people. There is no boundary that can be set up. There is no government that can rule him out. No wall that can keep him out. No doctrine, no indoctrination that can stop the spirit of God working. And when we get to heaven, it will be so awesome to see what the body of Christ looks like. It it gives me goosebumps. And when we pigeonhole that in any way in our mind, we are getting a false picture of the heart of God who's big enough and broad enough to love 
all of his children from every background. Everyone is dead in their trespasses and sin. It doesn't matter what persuasion of sin. Everyone from every culture, every color, inner city, outside in the country, everyone is born dead in trespasses and sin and needs one thing to happen to them to be made alive in Christ Jesus. And so the fact that all of us are sinners mean that all of us get to be united in one Savior who saves from all different walks of life. The gospel brings and unifies together people to worship. The gospel, secondly, in verses 4 and 5, proclaims truth, protects um, against heresy, and preserves our freedom. The gospel proclaims truth. The very mention of the word truth, if heard by people outside this place, would probably trigger them. Truth, what do you mean truth? There is no truth. We, we just all are finding our own way, and what's true for you doesn't necessarily have to be true for me. Come on, man. Listen, the truth is what sets people free. The truth is exclusive by nature. We want to be the kind of church who's diverse and inclusive of everyone who the exclusive truth has changed and is saving. We don't discriminate based on any past performance, on any place that you're from or culture that you're raised in, but we absolutely hold to the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I'll tell you that in our nation and in the world, whole denominations have moved away from the idea that the Bible tells us the heart of God that is true. And what whole denominations are doing now is saying, yes, but in the name of tolerance and inclusiveness, we're throwing away truth so that we can let everyone come and partake in our thing. But here's the problem. If you know the truth and the truth shall set you free, but you threw away the truth, what you're inviting everybody to do is come identify as a sinner and identify as a saint just so that you can give them the inclusionary benefit of being whatever they want to identify as. But when everybody gets to identify as both something that God hates and someone who God loves, the logic says they can't both be happening at the same time, and what really is happening is we're letting sinners remain in their sin without ever being challenged to be sanctified, without ever being challenged to have to surrender at the foot of the cross. See, the cross is for everyone who is broken at the foot of the cross. The cross is for no one who comes and says, I just want to add it to all that I already have going on. The truth by nature removes everything else off the table because it says of itself, I am the only. The gospel proclaims truth. And because it says of itself it is the only way, it protects us against heresy. And because it frees us 
in Christ Jesus, it preserves our freedom. The last thing that the gospel does then is is that it unites people in fellowship. It unites people in worship. Did you just look at your watch? I just looked at it too. So really quickly, at the very end of our passage, what we see is the right hand of fellowship being given to one another. And, and my challenge for us as we close, and I'll ask the music team to come back up, if you would, please. And why, why they're doing that to, to make them not feel awkward about standing up. Could everybody stand up and we're going to just do a little exercise? <laughs> After an hour and a half, we need a stretch. Listen, can I just ask you guys to just look around at each other? Yeah, I know, it's awkward. I won't go so far as to like, go hug somebody. But if you just like look around at each other, because here's what the last of this passage means. Insofar as who you're looking at is a born-again Christian, this is team Jesus. And whether you just looked around and saw somebody that you have a difference with, whether you look around at somebody that you don't understand with, if you looked around and you saw somebody else who is blood-bought by Jesus Christ, we're all on the same team building one kingdom, and it's not ours. And so we don't even have to like everybody on the team. I played on a lot of sports teams where I didn't like people, but I sure learned to work together the best that we could on the performance area because we wanted the result of a victory. This is team Jesus. And we all together are working for one thing, that glorious thing that happens when a dead sinner hears the gospel through team Jesus and is born again by the power of God for the glory of God alone. Here we preach God's word because it's truth. We're devoted to the unity we have in essentials but we have freedom to hold different opinions and non-salvation things. And we're committed to one another in all things because we're united in purpose to see God glorified. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, would you do that? Would you allow us to get over the hurdles of differences that we have? not only in Trinity Bible Church in this local assembly, but Lord, as we are, are gospel-bearing torches out in the darkness, everyone in here because of our own upbringing has areas of prejudice where we're just more naturally comfortable with one type of person than another. And your gospel truth is penetrating into every corner of the world would you make sure lord in our hearts that we are ready to see you work in people who may not be alike us in different areas but who come proclaiming jesus christ as lord and savior with the fruit of salvation in their life And would we, meeting strangers who bear your name, feel immediately drawn together as one team, one family, brothers and sisters, united celebrating our one Savior, the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So that the world that is fractioning along every line right now could see something almost unique in the church where we hang together across differences because of the one thing we all have in common.
Sinners saved by grace through faith in the work of Jesus Christ for the glory of God. In Jesus' name we ask, amen.